Chapter Twenty Two of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Twenty Two. Virtue is bold, and goodness never fearful. Shakespeare. Left at three years of age, dependent upon the mercy and charity of a world in which she was friendless and alone. Gertrude had, during the period of her residence at Nan Grant's, found little of that mercy, and still less of that charity. But although her turbulent spirit rebelled at the treatment she received, she was then too young to reason upon the subject, or come to any philosophical conclusions upon the general hardness and cruelty of humanity. And had she done so, such impressions could not but have been effaced amid the atmosphere of love and kindness which surrounded her during the succeeding period. When cherished and protected in the home of her kind foster father, she enjoyed a degree of parental tenderness which rarely falls to the lot of an orphan. And having, through a similar providence, found in Emily additional proof of the fact that the tie of kindred blood is not always needed to bind heart to heart in the closest bonds of sympathy and affection, she had hitherto, in her unusually happy experience, felt none of the evils that spring from dependence upon the bounty of strangers. The unfriendly conduct of Mrs. Ellis had, at times, been a source of irritation to her, but the housekeeper's power and influence in the family were limited by her own dependence upon the good opinion of those she served, and Gertrude's patience and forbearance had at last nearly disarmed her enmity. From Mr. Graham she had until now experienced only kindness. On her first coming to live with them, he had, to be sure, taken very little notice of her. And so long as she was quiet, well mannered, and no trouble to anybody, had been quite indifferent concerning her. He observed that Emily was fond of the girl and liked to have her with her, and though he wondered at her taste, was glad that she should be indulged. It was not long, however, before he was led to notice in his daughter's favorite a quickness of mind and a propriety of deportment which had the effect of creating an interest in her that soon increased to positive partiality. Especially when he discovered her taste for gardening, and her perseverance in laboring among her flowers. He not only set off a portion of his grounds for her use, but charmed with her success during the first summer after the appropriation was made, added to the original flower garden, and himself assisted in laying out and ornamenting it. Emily formed no plan with regard to Gertrude's education, to which she did not obtain a ready assent from her father. And Gertrude, deeply grateful for so much bounty, spared no pains to evidence her sense of obligation and regard, by treating Mr. Graham with the greatest respect and attention. But unfortunately for the continuance of these amicable relations, Mr. Graham possessed neither the disinterested, forbearing spirit of Uncle True, or the saintly patience and self-sacrifice of Emily. Mr. Graham was a liberal and highly respectable man. He had the reputation, as the world goes, of being a remarkably high-minded and honorable man, and not without reason, for his conduct had oftentimes justified this current report of him. But alas, he was a selfish man, and often took very one-sided views. He had supported and educated Gertrude. He liked her. She was the person whom he preferred for a traveling companion for himself and Emily. Nobody else had any claim upon her to compare with his. And he either could not, or would not, see that her duty lay in any other direction. And yet, while he was ready to act the tyrant, he deceived himself with the idea that he was the best friend she had in the world. 
He was not capable of understanding that kind of regard, which causes one to find gratification in whatever tends to the present or future welfare of another, without reference to himself or his own interests. Acting, therefore, under the influence of his own prejudiced and narrow sentiments, Mr. Graham gave way to his ill-temper, and distressed Gertrude by the first really harsh and severe language he had ever used towards her. During the long hours of a wakeful and restless night, Gertrude had ample time to review and consider her own situation and circumstances. At first, her only emotion was one of grief and distress, such as a child might feel on being reproved. But that gradually subsided, as other and bitter thoughts rose up in her mind. What right, thought she, has Mr. Graham to treat me thus, to tell me I shall go with them on this southern journey, and speak as if my other friends were ciphers in his estimation, and ought to be in my own? Does he consider that my freedom is to be the price of my education, and am I no longer to be able to say yes or no? Emily does not think so. Emily, who loves and needs me a thousand times more than Mr. Graham, thinks I have acted rightly, and assured me, only a few hours ago, that it was my duty to carry out the plans I had formed. And my solemn promise to Willie, is that to be held for nothing? No, thought she. It would be tyranny in Mr. Graham to insist upon my remaining with them, and I am glad I have resolved to break away from such thraldom. Besides, I was educated to teach, and Mr. W. says it is important to commence at once, while my studies are fresh in my mind. Perhaps if I yielded now, and stayed here living in luxury, I should continue to do so until I lost the power of regaining my independence. It is cruel in Mr. Graham to try to deprive me of my free will." So much said pride, and Gertrude's heart, naturally proud, and only kept in check by strict and conscientious self-control, listened a while to such suggestions. But not long. She had accustomed herself to view the conduct of others in that spirit of charity which she desired should be exercised towards her own, and milder thoughts soon took the place of these excited and angry feelings. Perhaps, said she to herself, as she reviewed in her mind the conversation of the evening, it is, after all, pure kindness to me that prompted Mr. Graham's interference. He may think, as Emily does, that I am undertaking too much. It is impossible for him to know how strong my motives are, how deep I consider my obligations to the Sullivans, and how much I am needed by them at this time. I had no idea, either, that it was such an understood thing that I was to be of the party to the South. For though Emily talked as if she took it for granted, Mr. Graham never spoke of it, or asked me to go and I could not suppose it would be any great disappointment to him to have me refuse. But after his planning the journey, as he says he has done, with reference to the enjoyment of us both, I do not wonder at his being somewhat annoyed. He probably feels, too, as if I had been under his guardianship so long that he has almost a right to decide upon my conduct. And he has been very indulgent to me, and I a stranger with no claims. Oh, I hate to have him think me so ungrateful." Shall I then decide to give up my teaching, go to the South, and leave dear Mrs. Sullivan to suffer, perhaps die, while I am away? No, that is impossible. I will never be such a traitor to my own heart and my own sense of right. Sorry as I shall be to offend Mr. Graham, I must not allow fear of his anger to turn me from my duty. Having thus resolved to brave the tempest that she well knew she must encounter, and committed her cause to him who judgeth righteously— Gertrude tried to compose herself to sleep, but found it impossible to obtain any untroubled rest. 
scarcely had slumber eased her mind of the weight that pressed upon it, before dreams of an equally painful nature seized upon her, and startled her back to consciousness. In some of these visions she beheld Mr. Graham, angry and excited as on the previous evening, and threatening her with the severest marks of his displeasure if she dared to thwart his plans. And then again she seemed to see Willie, the same boyish youth from whom she had parted nearly five years before, beckoning her with a sad countenance to the room where his pale mother lay in a swoon, as Gertrude had a few weeks before discovered her. Exhausted by a succession of such harassing images, she at length gave up the attempt to obtain any rest through sleep, and rising, seated herself at the window, where watching the now descending moon and the first approach of dawn, she found, in quiet self-communing, the strength and courage which she felt would be requisite to carry her calmly and firmly through the following day, a day destined to witness her sad separation from Emily, and her farewell to Mr. Graham, which would probably be of a still more distressing character. It may seem strange that anything more than the ordinary mental courage and decision should be needful to sustain Gertrude under the present emergency. But, in truth, it required no small amount of both these qualities for a young girl of eighteen years, long dependent upon the liberality of an elderly man, well known as a stern dictator in his household, to suddenly break the bonds of custom and habit, and mark out a course for herself, in opposition to his wishes and intentions. And nothing but an urgent motive could have led the grateful and peace-loving Gertrude to such a step. The tyrannical disposition of Mr. Graham was well understood in his family, each member of which was accustomed to respect all his wishes and whims. And though he was always indulgent, and usually kind, none ever ventured to brave a temper, which, when excited, was violent in the extreme. It cannot then be surprising that Gertrude's heart should have almost failed her, when she stood, half an hour before breakfast-time, with the handle of the dining-room door in her hand, summoning all her energies for another meeting, with the formidable opposer of her plans. She paused but a moment, however, then opened the door and went in. Mr. Graham was where she expected to see him, sitting in his armchair, and on the breakfast-table by his side lay the morning paper. It had been Gertrude's habit, for a year or two, to read that paper aloud to the old gentleman at this same hour, and it was for that very purpose she had now come. She advanced towards him, with her usual, "'Good morning.' The salutation was returned in a purposely constrained voice. She seated herself, and leaned forward to take the newspaper, but he placed his hand upon it and prevented her. "'I was going to read the news to you, sir.' "'And I do not wish to have you read, or do anything else for me, until I know whether you have concluded to treat me with the respect I have a right to demand from you.' "'I certainly never intended to treat you otherwise than with respect, Mr. Graham.' When girls or boys set themselves up in opposition to those older and wiser than themselves, they manifest the greatest disrespect they are capable of. But I am willing to forgive the past, if you assure me, as I think you will, after a night's reflection, that you have returned to a right sense of your duty. I cannot say, sir, that I have changed my views with regard to what that duty is. "'Do you mean to tell me?' asked Mr. Graham, rising from his chair, and speaking in a tone which made Gertie's heart quake in spite of her brave resolutions. Do you mean to tell me that you have any idea of persisting in your folly? Is it folly, sir, to do right? Right? There is a great difference of opinion between you and me as to what right is in this case. But, Mr. Graham, I think, if you knew all the circumstances, you would not blame my conduct. 
I have told Emily the reasons that influenced me, and she—don't quote Emily to me, interrupted Mr. Graham, as he walked the floor rapidly. I don't doubt she'd give her head to anybody that asked for it, but I hope I know a little better what is due to myself, and I tell you plainly, Miss Gertrude Flint, without any more words in the matter, that if you leave my house, as you propose doing, you leave it with my displeasure, and that, you may find one of these days, is no light thing to have incurred. Unnecessarily, too, he muttered, as you are doing. I am very sorry to displease me, Mr. Graham, but— "'No, you're not sorry. If you were, you would not walk straight in the face of my wishes,' said Mr. Graham, who began to observe the expression of Gertrude's face, which, though grieved and troubled, had in the last few minutes acquired additional firmness, instead of quailing beneath his severe and cutting words. "'But I have said enough about a matter which is not worthy of so much notice. You can go or stay as you please.' I wish you to understand, however, that in the former case I utterly withdraw my protection and assistance from you. You must take care of yourself, or trust to strangers. I suppose you expect your Calcutta friend will support you, perhaps come home and take you under his especial care. But if you think so, you know little of the world. I dare say he is married to an Indian by this time, and if not, has pretty much forgotten you. Mr. Graham, said Gertrude proudly, Mr. Sullivan will not probably return to this country for many years, and I assure you I neither look to him or anyone else for my support. I intend to earn a maintenance for myself. A heroic resolve, said Mr. Graham, contemptuously, and pronounced with a dignity I hope you will be able to maintain. Am I to consider, then, that your mind is made up? It is, sir, said Gertrude, not a little strengthened for the dreaded necessity of pronouncing her final resolution by Mr. Graham's sarcastic speeches. And you go? I must. I believe it to be my duty, and am therefore willing to sacrifice my own comfort, and, what I assure you, I value far more, your friendship. Mr. Graham did not seem to take the least notice of the latter part of her remark, and, before she had finished speaking, so far forgot his usual politeness as to drown her voice in the violent ringing of the table-bell. It was answered by Katie with the breakfast, and Emily and Mrs. Ellis coming in at the same moment, all seated themselves at table, and the meal was commenced in unusual silence and constraint. For Emily had heard the loud tones of her father's voice, and was filled with anxiety and alarm. While Mrs. Ellis plainly saw, from the countenances of all present, that something unpleasant had occurred. When Mr. Graham, whose appetite appeared undiminished, had finished eating a hearty breakfast, he turned to Mrs. Ellis, and deliberately and formally invited her to accompany himself and Emily on their journey to the south, mentioning the probability that they should pass some weeks in Havana. Mrs. Ellis, who had never before heard any intimation that such a tour was contemplated, accepted the invitation with pleasure and alacrity, and proceeded to ask a number of questions concerning the proposed route and length of absence, while Emily hid her agitated face behind her teacup, and Gertrude, who had lately been reading letters from Cuba, and was aware that Mr. Graham knew the strong interest she consequently felt in the place, pondered in her mind whether it were possible that he could be guilty of the small and mean desire to vex and mortify her. Breakfast over, Emily hastily sought her room, where she was immediately joined by Gertrude. In answering Emily's earnest inquiries as to the scene which had taken place, Gertrude forbore to repeat Mr. Graham's most bitter and wounding remarks, for she saw, from her kind friend's pained and anxious countenance, how deeply she participated in her own sense of wrong and misapprehension. 
She told her, however, that it was now well understood by Mr. Graham that she was to leave, and as his sentiments towards her were far from kindly, she thought it best to go at once, especially as she could never be more needed by Mrs. Sullivan than at present. Emily saw the reasonableness of the proposal, assented to it, and agreed to accompany her to town that very afternoon. For deeply sensitive at any unkindness manifested toward Gertrude, she preferred to have her depart thus abruptly, rather than encounter her father's contemptuous neglect. The remainder of the day, therefore, was spent by Gertrude in packing and other preparations, while Emily sat by, counseling and advising the future conduct of her adopted darling, lamenting the necessity of their separation, and exchanging with her reiterated assurances of continued and undiminished affection. Oh, if you could only write to me, dear Emily, during your long absence, what a comfort it would be! exclaimed Gertrude. With Mrs. Ellis's assistance, my dear, replied Emily, I will send you such news as I can of our movements. But though you may not be able to hear much from me, you will be ever in my thoughts, and I shall never forget to commend my beloved child to the protection and care of one who will be to her a better counsellor and friend than I could be. In the course of the day Gertrude sought Mrs. Ellis, and astonished that lady by announcing that she had come to have a few farewell words with her. Surprise and curiosity, however, were soon superseded by the housekeeper's eagerness to expatiate upon the kindness and generosity of Mr. Graham, and the delights of the excursion in prospect. After wishing her a great deal of pleasure, Gertrude begged to hear from her by letter during her absence, to which apparently unheard request, Mrs. Ellis only replied by asking if Gertrude thought a thibet dress would be uncomfortable on the journey, and when it was repeated with still greater earnestness, she, with equal unsatisfactoriness to the supplicant for epistolary favors, begged to know how many pairs of undersleeves she should probably require. Having responded to her questions, and at last gained her ear and attention, Gertrude obtained from her a promise to write one letter, which would, she declared, be more than she had done for years. Before leaving the house, Gertrude sought Mr. Graham's study, in hopes that he would take a friendly leave of her. But on her telling him that she had come to bid him good-bye, he indistinctly muttered the simple words of that universal formula, so deep in its meaning when coming from the heart, so chilling when uttered, as on the present occasion, by stern and nearly closed lips, and turning his back upon her, took up the tongs to mend his fire. So she went away, with a tear in her eye, and sadness in her heart, for until now Mr. Graham had been a good friend to her. A far different scene awaited her in the upper kitchen, where she went to seek Mrs. Prime and Katie. "'Bless your soul, dear Miss Gertrude,' said the former, stumbling up the staircase which led from the lower room, and wiping her hands on her apron. "'How we shall miss yer! Why, the house won't be worth livin' in when you're out of it. My gracious, if you don't come back, we shall all die out in a fortnight. Why, you're the life and soul of the place. But there, I guess you know what's right. So if you must go, we must bear it. Though Katie and I'll cry our eyes out, for aught I know.' "'Sure, Miss Garthrude,' said Irish Katie, "'and it's right good in you to be after comin' to bid us good-bye. "'I don't see how you gets memory to think of us at all, "'and I'm sure you'll never be better off than what I wish yer. "'I can't but think, Miss, it'll go to help yer along, "'that everybody's good wishes and blessin' goes with yer.' "'Thank you, Katie, thank you,' said Gertrude, "'much touched by the simple earnestness of these good friends. "'You must come and see me some time in Boston.' "'And you too, Mrs. Prime. I shall depend upon it. "'Good-bye. "'And the good-bye that now fell upon Gertrude's ear "'was a hearty and a true one. 
It followed her through the hall, and as the carryall drove away, she heard it mingling with the rattling of the vehicle. End of chapter 22